Thank you for connecting to the Bethany Chapel Sermon Link. Our prayer is that you will find the following sermon helpful and inspiring for your spiritual journey. If you are a visitor to this resource, or if you've not attended our church, we would love to meet you in person. Our vision at Bethany Chapel is opening doors to God's truth and love. God bless you as you listen. Today we're continuing uh, our series, Raw, or Real Authentic Worship, and I've titled our message today, uh, A God When I'm Afraid, A God When I'm Afraid. Are worriers more intelligent? I got good news for those of us who worry. Do you worry a lot? If so, we have some good news for you. According to recent research, worriers have a higher IQ than non-worriers. I have never felt so brilliant as I do after reading that, because I am a perennial worrier. From Slate, the adage that ignorance is bliss suggests the reverse, that knowledge involves anguish. Now it's starting to get some scientific validation. Studies are showing that people who show a high degree of worry not only score higher on tests, but they're also able to sense threats faster. We knew that. We're thinking about the threats that don't exist. So the next time someone tells you to relax, explain that nervousness has its virtues. You're smarter than them. That is not to say that one needs to be extremely paranoid, but as the article concludes, in a pinch, above average on ease might just be something to brag about. David Wilson, Scary Smart Slate Magazine. Now, I would also say it's not paranoia if they really are talking about you. Just, just think about that. I read that for the worriers among us. It's the only positive thing we're going to say about worry today as we talk about fear, worry, and anxiety. According to data from the National Institute of Mental Health, some 38% of girls, 13 to 17, so almost four in 10 teenage girls, 26% of boys have an anxiety disorder. We're not saying they worry a little, we're saying they have an anxiety disorder. On college campuses, anxiety is running well ahead of depression as the most common mental health concern, according to a 2016 study of more than 150,000 students. Meanwhile, the number of web searches involving the term has nearly doubled over the last few years, according to Google Trends. Interestingly, the trend line for depression is relatively flat. So what's going on in the mental health arena is this. Depression has always been an issue, that's staying flat. Anxiety is going through the roof, especially among young people. Those were pre-COVID studies. COVID, I think we would all agree, put fear, worry, anxiety on steroids contributed to anger a little bit as well. We're spiritually aware of this. We are, because as people experience this, they know it intuitively, they're going through something, they start trying to research the solution. The good news is Amazon keeps track of our highlights. In Worry Less, Live More, Robert Morgan illustrates the fact that many in society are very conscious of the anxiety they're experiencing. When ebook owners mark sentences, the online retailer knows and notes it. Recently, Amazon released a list of the most popular passages in some of its best-selling books, such as The Hunger Games, the Harry Potter series, and Pride and Prejudice. Also released the most highlighted passages in the Bible. Said, I expected favorite biblical portion to be, you know, John 3, 16, Psalm 23, the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6, but no, 
It was a less prominent text, but one that's striking a deep chord in today's world. It was Philippians 4, 6, and 7, most popular verses in the Bible. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So number one research Bible verse is a verse about anxiety. Technically, worry is a sin, technically, because worry exhibits in our lives a lack of faith. So if you ask, is worry a sin? Yeah, it's also sort of a natural part of our, our, our thinking process. Could we get those lights back to where they were, please? I'd appreciate that. So worry is a sin because it demonstrates a lack of faith. But it's also, in some cases, a, a mental health problem. And, and I think the church has done, frankly, a pretty terrible job of looking at this sort of issue from that uh, perspective. The church's answer, you know, 20 or 30 years ago when people were struggling with issues like this was, you know, just pray a little bit more. I think you're going to have to turn those lights all the way on or, or they're going to flicker. Thank you. You know, when you, somebody has brain cancer, we don't just say, pray more. We recognize there's something physical going on. So sometimes things are a lot more complicated. And today I want to look at a psalm in which David, King David, is potentially going to die. I think we'd all agree that this is rock bottom in David's life and experience, and he's full of fear, and he writes a psalm about it. So I want you to turn to page 405, page 405 in your Bible, and we're going to read Psalm 34. And the beauty of this psalm, like many of the psalms, is there's this inscription or superscription at the beginning of the psalm which explains the historical setting during which this psalm was written. And, and it makes these psalms come alive. And I'm going to talk a little bit about more, more about those inscriptions in a few moments. But page 405, over in the right-hand column, Psalm 34. Now it says the Lord, a provider and deliverer, that's more of a heading that the people who are putting the Bible together just put there. That's not original, but here you have the inscription. A Psalm of David, when he feigned madness before Abimelech, who drove him away and he departed. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul will make its boast in the Lord, the humble will hear it and rejoice. O oh, magnify the Lord with me, and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord, and he answered me, and delivered me from all my fears. They looked to him and were radiant, and their faces will never be ashamed. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him, and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him, and rescues them. O oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. How blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. O oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for to those who fear him there's no want. Young lions lack and suffer hunger, but they who seek the Lord shall not be in want of any good thing. Come, you children, listen to me. I'll teach you the fear of the Lord. Who is the man who desires life and loves length of days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Depart from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and his ears are open to their cry. The face of the Lord is against evildoers to cut off the memory of them from the earth. The righteous cry, and the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones. None of them is broken. Evil shall slay the wicked. Those who hate the righteous will be condemned. 
The Lord redeems the soul of his servants. None of them, none of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. Psalm 34 there, I'm just going to look at two points, and I'm going to talk about why that is. First point, I lift up the Lord's name. He has a history of rescuing his own. Now, when I read that psalm, psalms are kind of complex. Uh, They're Israel's sort of poetry and hymns. And they would be much like our songs today. If we're singing a song during the worship set, there's, there's a lot of words, yet typically you're singing a couple of verses and choruses. They're, they're not that complex. You know, we go through many slides, but it's a couple of verses and it's choruses. And that's sort of what the Psalms are like. They're very similar. Psalm 34 has lots of words, Yet scholars, when they analyze it and when they outline it, I'm not talking about when pastors do it because we tend to outline things to death at times. I try not to do that. But when you look at this psalm from a scholarly standpoint, there's two primary themes and a transition in, in almost in the middle of it. So if you were to take the psalm and outline it and come up with six or seven points and a bunch of subpoints, you'd be violating what the author was actually intending. He's really got two key themes in this psalm. But often when people write psalms, just like when they write poetry or songs, there's sort of five ways of saying one thing. That's what the psalmists do. They'll make a point, and then they'll say it five different ways. They're actually called Hebrew parallelisms, where they'll make a statement, then they'll say it another way, sort of synonymously. And in some psalms, you might have five or ten verses sort of restating the same thing with just a little different twist on it. Very common. So you look at just the overall themes, and there are two. Verses one through seven, which is what we're talking about here. I lift up the Lord's name. He has a history of rescuing his own. And then verses eight through 22, which we'll talk about in a few moments. Before that, let's talk about the history behind the psalm, because this is a fascinating story. The inscription right before verse one, a psalm of David, when he feigned madness before Abimelech, who drove him away, and he departed. So let's talk about that. A couple of weeks ago, I mentioned the questions surrounding the authenticity of these inscriptions. So there are scholars who believe that these are part of the Bible, and there are scholars who believe that these were added much later in history, and thus they're not part of the inspired original text, which is why when you look at these inscriptions, there's no verse number one in front of that inscription, is there? Because that means a group of people said, we're not sure this came out with the original manuscript, the original autograph. We're not sure David said this, and if it was added later, we're not gonna say it was actually God's word, but we believe it's historically accurate. A lot of people believe they were just added later, but they're still accurate, but they're not convinced David put it there. However, in contrast to that, the earliest Hebrew manuscripts that we have contain these inscriptions. And if you open a Hebrew Bible, which you read from right to left, if you have Hebrew class in seminary, it's kind of funny, it's the opposite English. You're reading right to left in every line and every page. It's kind of funny. The Hebrew Bible includes them and actually makes them the first verse in each chapter they occur in. So the Hebrew Bible, which predates any you know, English transition, I hate to spoil this for you, but Christianity wasn't born in England. You know? So the Hebrew Bible, the Jewish Bible, the oldest Jewish Bibles, have these as verses in their chapters. And so their first verse is a Psalm of David, who feigned madness before Abimelech. In their minds, these are part of the original text. 
So we're sort of left with a situation and from a critical scholarship standpoint, we're just not sure if God wrote these or they were added. We take the conservative approach. We don't want to say something's the Bible if it's not, but they're very likely historically accurate either way. So when you have this as a backdrop to a psalm, it adds incredible meaning. David wrote this psalm after an experience where he had to act like a, a madman. Israel as a nation was supposed to be led by God-anointed leaders. Uh, she was a theocracy. A theocracy means God is king. Theos, God, Cressy, you know, sort of kingdom. God is her king. And so you'll see this theocratic anointing as the spirit of God sort of comes on prophets and military leaders, judges, kings, etc. They were leaders of Israel and God would give them his word to help lead the nation. Uh, they didn't have a king at first. God really didn't want them to have one. They felt like they needed one. God sort of gave them what they wanted, but God was going to pick the king. And that king was supposed to be a good king a king after God's own heart. So it would be, and this is Israel's Old Testament, wouldn't this be great, government model is theocracy through monarchy. That's the perfect government. God is the king through a godly king. All right, that's like the perfect government in the scriptures. God is king through a human king. And the human king does whatever God wants him to. No dilution of humanity in that. Well, so God picks the first king and it's Saul but he was such a spiritual failure. I mean, he had some promise. He's like a, he was a big dude, head and shoulders above everybody else. He kind of looked the part. But when you put Saul sort of under the microscope and you put pressure on him, he was not a very good leader spiritually. He ignored God's will. He ignored the prophets who God wanted to have speak to Saul. In one situation, when he was under pressure, he consulted a witch. You know, this is the king in a theocracy where God is king consulting a witch about what to do next in battle. And the result was, God said, your son is not going to be king. I am taking this kingdom away from you, and I'm giving it to somebody else. So David is going to be the next king. We all know that. David shows up when the Israelites are fighting the Philistines. And David shows up as he's bringing a care package uh, to his brothers and to their commanders. So David is, you know, bringing cheese and bread and so on. He's going to bring it to his brothers who are at the front. He's been taking care of the sheep. He says, you know, Dad, will you take care of him for a day? I'll take this to my brothers. He gets up early in the day. He walks several miles. He gets to the battlefront where the armies are on opposing hills over the valley of Elah at a field called Ephestamim, which means field of blood, plural, field of bloods. Historic battle place. Thousands had died there. Scores of battles had taken place there. So David's there with his brothers and they all rush to the front lines and all of a sudden this giant named Goliath comes out, he's nine foot six. With about 200 pounds of armor and weaponry cat-like movements. He would be like heavyweight MMA today, and he'd be winning, and it wouldn't be fake. He was a monster. He was a giant. Some good genes in that family. In fact, came from Gath, from a whole family of giants. Nine foot six, cat-like quickness. He was a military champion. And he came out, and he stepped out into the field there uh, at Ephes Demim, 
the Valley of Elah, and he starts challenging anyone in Israel to a one-on-one fight, which actually was used in ancient times to decide battles so you'd lose fewer soldiers, and it would be beneficial to both armies to lose fewer soldiers. So he steps out and he starts insulting Israel, and he's insulting their God, and David is here bringing a care package to his brothers from Timmy's, and he hears that, and he's like, all right, this is enough. Why is this happening? Why is nobody stepping out into the valley to take on this ogre? He looks like Shrek. He doesn't look that dangerous. David said, I'll do it. Put me in, coach. By the way, what do we get if we win this thing? King's daughter, no taxes. All right, yeah, I'll do it. They tried to put armor on him. He's too small. He's not a small guy, but it was Saul's armor, and Saul was a huge guy. He says, no, I'm, I'm good with just, just what I got on. I killed a lion and a bear. God's been with me in these kind of situations before. I got a little history with this. Walked out in the valley with a slingshot, hit Goliath in the forehead, stunned him. Goliath fell. He wasn't dead. David ran up, took his sword out of his hands, cut off his head, and held it up. This day you will know there is a God in heaven. And the rest is history. I love that story. Wish I'd have been there. I want to see the replay in heaven of the actual event. Victory over Goliath. He became Saul's personal sort of attendant and musician. He became a military champion in his own right as he led armies. He became a military leader. And finally, it started occurring to everybody, he's most likely to succeed Saul. He's most likely to be the next king. Which means as Saul is understanding this and God is distancing himself from Saul, Saul recognizes This dude is a threat to me. I don't care what he's done. He's dead. Because Saul, of course, had a view that his son should succeed him. And once Saul made that decision, he started acting a little passive-aggressively towards David. Like, hey, good to see you. And then a spear is flying across the room. Doesn't say passive-aggressive in the text, but I think we'd all agree. It's a little unsettled. Tried to kill him a couple of times in his room, the palace, and then David started being hunted by Saul. Eventually, David had a little army that surrounded him that was hunted by Saul's army, but at times, David was alone. Now, scholars have thought through, you know, how long did this go on? How long was David hunted by Saul? And the reality is we don't know. The minimum amount would be maybe 16 or 18 months. The maximum amount, and I think the most popular view, is probably about seven years. You're a military champion. You killed Goliath. You've won battles, but you're a threat to the king. And for seven years, he is trying to kill you. You've been anointed by Samuel the prophet to be the next king in front of your father and brothers. You know God's hand is on your life. You've been good. You've been obedient. Yet for seven years, you are hunted in Israelite territory and outside of it where necessary. And David wrote at least eight psalms during that time. And the superscriptions or inscriptions are found in eight different psalms. In this order, scholars think, 7, 59, 56, 34, the one we're at today, 52, 57, 142, and 54. Eight psalms written during this flight As David introduces the psalm, after he's gone through the experience I'm going to read about in a moment, his word for God is Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. Remember, that's the Hebrew word for Yahweh, four Hebrew consonants 
when they added vowel points later, Yehovah, it's the same word, Yahweh and Jehovah, it's the same word, just got vowels. It's the self-existence God. It's the to be verb in Hebrew. I am that I am. The God of all of Israel's promises. The God who introduced himself to Moses and said, when Moses was supposed to free Israel, who am I going to tell him is you know, going with us? They said, tell him, I am is going to be with you. Yahweh, the self-existent God who needs nothing else. That God has a history of rescuing his own. And we see references to this much more specifically in verses four and verse seven. I sought the Lord. He answered me, delivered me from all my fears. And then verse seven, I love this. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and rescues them. Now here's what was going on. Here's what he was actually writing about. The story is found in 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel 21, here's the story. David arose and fled that day from Saul. He went to Achish, king of Gath. But the servants of Achish said to him, Is this not David, the king of the land? Did they not sing of this one as they danced, saying, Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands? So he's at the gate of Gath trying to get into a Philistine city for safety. David took these words to heart and greatly feared Achish the king. So he's found out, he's at the gates. They're just, they know who he is. So he disguised his sanity before them, acted insanely in their hands, scribbled on the doors of the gate, and let his saliva run down his beard. Then Achish said to his servants, behold, you see the man behaving like a madman? Why do you bring him to me? Do I lack madmen? Rhetorical question, I hope. Do I lack crazy people that you have brought this one to act the madman in my presence? Shall this one come into my house? David's fleeing for his life. He doesn't have an army with him. He's on his own. He goes into Philistine territory. It's their primary enemy at this point in history. He goes to Gath, which is the hometown of Goliath. They'd just done his funeral a little while before. They'd seen David on the battlefield. They knew what he looked like. He made to change his haircut a little bit, but you recognize that face. It's plastered all over social media. So they say to Achish, isn't this David? I mean, the Hebrew women wrote songs about him. You know, Saul has slain his thousands, David is ten thousands. Psalm 34 says the king's name is Abimelech, not Achish, but that's because we believe Abimelech is simply an old word for king. So same event. David can't run. He's already in their hands. He's at the city gate. There are guards there. The king is there now. So he starts, you know, starts doing graffiti. He's like thinking, okay, what can I do here? Okay, when I was in sixth grade, I did this in the men's bathroom. He starts doing graffiti on the gates. He starts drooling on his beard. Sword swinging, drooling, praying, all at the same time. This is rock bottom. Wouldn't you think this is rock bottom? When you have to drool in the presence of your enemies to act crazy so they don't kill you, he looks alone and abandoned, except as he said, I love this, God had set up camp around him. God had set up camp, and he does for anyone 
like this. He says, verse four, I sought the Lord, he answered me, delivered me. Verse seven, the angel of the Lord. Now who's the angel of the Lord? It's either like a leader of the Lord's armies or some people believe when you see the definite article, the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament that that is potentially the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. Third person in the Trinity before he comes to earth. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and rescues them. God camps around you when you love him and follow him. And David was able to leave that day, the city gates. God delivered his own. That will leave a mark in your spiritual history. You see God rescue you out of a situation like that, that will leave a mark in a good way. Usually we say, that'll leave a mark. It's like something bad happened, that'll leave a mark. This will leave a mark in a good way. You've got a scar in life and you're like, man, God was there for me. Here we have this transition then in the chapter, the second point. My confidence in God's deliverance comes from my commitment to God's wisdom. So the second theme in this chapter is why David knows God will deliver him and his assurance, his, his encouragement about that has to do with the fact that the life he's living so in the second part of the psalm, you've got an encouragement to fear the Lord, and there's talk about sort of the experience of fearing the Lord and the rewards that it brings. So actually, you get to the second part of the psalm, and some people believe this should be called a wisdom psalm. You say, well, what does that mean? Well, it's a specific genre or type of psalm, sort of like Proverbs in the Psalms, if you will. So in verses nine to 14, you have an exhortation to elevate wisdom in your life, then the rest of the chapter talks about the rewards of wisdom. Verses 9 to 14, three times, talks about the fear of the Lord, and then uses other synonyms about seeking the Lord and so on. But the idea is, what you'll want to do to know that God will rescue you, you want to be a person that fears the Lord. And there he contrasts good versus evil behavior as well. And he kind of says the ultimate insurance policy in your life is fearing God and doing the right thing. And he throws a little nature illustration in there for the hunters who are reading the text as well. He said, young lions, sometimes even they lack food. And his point is, they're the top of the food chain, yet those who fear and seek the Lord lack no good thing. He said, lions go hungry and they can kill anything. But people who fear the Lord, they're never without what they need because God is on their side. Then in verses 15 to 22, the rewards of wisdom. He talks about the righteous four times, the righteous. Those are the people who are trying to you know, establish righteous standards in their lives. They're people who follow God. Notice all of God's actions towards righteous people. I'm gonna just read through those verses. Verse 15, the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous. I mean, God's looking out for you. His ears are open to their cry. I mean, he's listening to what you need. The face of the Lord uh, is against evildoers to cut off the memory of them from the earth. The righteous, there it is again, the righteous cry and the Lord hears, delivers them out of all their troubles. See how he just says it different ways, but kind of same theme. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted, saves those who are crushed in spirit, sort of fearful and worried. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones, none of them is broken. Evil shall slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the soul of his servants. None of them who take refuge in him will be 
condemned. David is saying that God is predisposed toward those who are predisposed toward God. He says, you live your life for God, God's predisposed to be living for you. It's kind of Deuteronomic you know, theology, sort of that comes out of the, the covenant between God and Israel. You know, if you bless me, I'll bless you. If you curse me, I'll curse you. That kind of thinking. That in general, not all, I mean, bad things do happen to good people, but in general, do the right thing. God's favor is towards you. And when it comes to spiritual confidence, isn't that kind of how it works? Isn't that how our confidence works? You know, if you're living right, if you're doing the right things, you're trying to obey God, you're trying to minimize the, you know, the sinful patterns in your life, you feel close to God, then when something bad happens, you kind of feel like, well, is God testing me? But if you're living below the standard, you're not living for God, you're kind of backslidden, you're doing a lot of things you shouldn't be doing, then something bad happens in your life and you're thinking, ooh, am I getting spanked? Am I getting punished? I mean, you have a whole different perspective. When you're living for God with confidence, you have a sense, yeah, bad things are gonna happen, but God's with me. When you're not living for God, you kind of have a sense that, ooh, is God working against me a little bit here? It just changes our perspective. I want to close with four quick apps questions. First, am I a fearful person? Am I a fearful person? It's the number one mental health issue. It's sort of agnostic. It hits us all. It hits unbelievers and believers alike. We often know it's irrational. In fact, we all know most of our worries never happen. Most of us know that if you're fearing that you're going to be at the gates of Gath and have to feign madness, it's probably actually not going to happen. In horror movies, the monster is scariest before you actually see it. From one local woman, that principle extended into the interior of her home. Washington County Sheriff's Office responded in April to a 9-11 call from a woman who reported hearing a burglar locked in her bathroom. Well, that's scary. She saw shadows moving under the door. Officers appeared on scene. They heard rustling under the same door. I mean, she's not making this up. After issuing several commands to come out, having brought in a canine unit for backup, they finally opened the door. They had guns drawn. I mean, they got a burglar in the bathroom. Deputies opened the door. They encountered the suspect. It's a Roomba vacuum cleaner. It's just doing its job. Bathroom floor was looking good. The suspect was not taken into custody. It's likely to be sentenced to several months of continuous domestic labor. You know, it's not a real problem. A lot of fear. Somebody's in the house, they're going to kill me. No, it's the Roomba. You know, sometimes our fears are irrational. We all know that. Have you ever heard of... I'm sure I'm just butchering the pronunciation. Frigatriscadicophobia. Frigatriscadicophobia. Anyone ever heard of that? Heard that term? You know what it is? There's a whole group of people on the planet. There's like thousands of them. They're afraid of Friday the 13th. It's a real thing. I mean, it's not a real thing, but it is for them. I mean, they're like, they won't go to work. There's hundreds of millions of dollars of lost productivity because this group of crazy people Scared of Friday the 13th. Shouldn't use the word crazy there. Take that back. But we know, yeah, Friday the 13th really doesn't change anything. You can fly on Friday the 13th. It's okay. 
We're afraid of, this world is just full of fear of getting hurt. I mean, remember when Bobby Orr was speaking about all the Canadian ice rinks that are being shut down in everyone's backyards? People, you know, you used to be able to go outside and turn on the hose in your yard or in just a field that was near your house. You'd flood it, you know, you put up some goals and kids went out there and they'd leave in the morning, they'd come back at night. I mean, he says those were the best times in his life. Bobby Orr, great hockey player saying that. Now Canada will find you, cities all around here, Calgary, Edmonton will find you if you put up one. I don't know what it's resolved. This was a few years ago. Maybe it's gotten better. But everyone's afraid. Somebody's going to get hurt. Somebody's going to be liable for it. Well, then outlaw hockey. Those are some bad words. Yeah, we're going to get hurt. We're going to get concussed a little bit. It happens. But you know what? But these kids play hockey. They all want to be professional hockey players. Do we really want to try to eliminate all fear in life? And let's not have ice. Well, wrong part of the world to have that commitment. We're full of fears. We live in a world of overstated fears. Life is never going to be safe. And worry and fear and anxiety, and I can tell you this from personal experience, because I'm one of these people, rob you of today's joy because of tomorrow's uncertainty. You give away your life. To fear. Second, am I actively cultivating faith and trust in God when I am fearful? Well, a few ideas here. First, you know, we can control this a little bit. A lot of people think, well, I can't control what comes into my mind. I can't control that. I'm sort of just a victim of that. You know, that's actually, the Bible talks about sort of disciplining your mind. You know, as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. You know, the Bible says every thought should be taken captive. And the Bible tells us, discipline our minds a little bit. Both the Bible and psychology talk about this. I mean, there's what's called cognitive behavioral therapy. I'm not an expert. I'm not a counselor. But the idea is sort of managing your mental state. I mean, if you talk to a doctor about this, they'd say, you know, you know basically you're going to worry some. And so you need to sort of discipline your mind to say, okay, there's this issue I'm concerned about. I'm going to think about this. I'm going to worry about this. At, at 5 o'clock tonight, I'm going to take 20 minutes to think about how to deal with this. I'm not going to think about it till then. I mean, you sort of plan it. The Bible talks about this in a sense. Psychology talks about it a lot. So there's some things we can do. Even if you're not a Christian, there's things we can do. But as Christians also pray about these things. That's what Philippians talks about. And trust God. We're in his hands. Am I cultivating faith and trust in God when fearful? Six, am I living an obedient life, or I should say third, am I living an obedient life creating confidence that he will look out for me? That's a big part of David's psalm. It's like, I, I fear God and he camps around me as a result of that. You do the right thing versus the wrong thing, you are one of the righteous. God sets up camp around you. What a word picture. Do you have a campsite around you? Is the angel of the Lord camping around your life? What a concept. David said, that's how God looks at you when you're one of the good guys. He's camping around your life. What's at your campsite? What's at your campsite? The sense that God is disciplining me or correcting me because I did something wrong, or do you live in such a way that you have confidence that, man, God's camped around you and he's gonna get you through it? And finally, do I see God as a deliverer even when the outcome is not as desired? All right, that's a good question. God doesn't promise a, you know, a stress-free, worry-free life. Sometimes he lets you be chased by Saul. Sometimes he'll let you be in a situation where you gotta act like a madman at the city gate. 
hopefully minus the drooling. But we all know God lets us get in some awful situations. He doesn't just, you know, we don't live in a bubble. He may be camped around us, but he still seems to let us get in these nasty situations. Sometimes Achish is going to hurt you. And, and when that happens, maybe deliverance looks a little different. Maybe deliverance is the maturing in your spirit and in your spiritual life to be able to walk through a difficult situation better. And just making it is the victory. In his book, Creatures of Habit, Steve Pohl writes, when I was in grade school, several of the kids in the neighborhood walked to and from school each day. We walked down a street where a man had a large dog. It was a boxer. Kind of looks a little bit like a pit bull, but not quite as mean. It had a very intimidating bark and was tethered to a long chain in the backyard. And when we'd walk past that house, the dog would start barking, come running after us. Of course, the chain would stop him, but we're always worried that he's going to break that chain. He's going to attack us. That's the way he looked. He was menacing. So I'd worry about that dog for blocks before I ever reached the house. One day, the owner of the dog was in the yard and watched this entire scene unfold. The next day, when we walked by his house, the man was there again, only this time he had the dog on a leash. When he saw us, he began to motion to us to come over to him. Come on over here, guys. Let him bite you. No, come on over here, guys. We didn't know if we were in trouble or if he's going to let his dog bite us. But either way, we're not walking over to him. Then he started walking to us with his dog on a chain. The entire time, the man kept saying, you don't need to be afraid of my dog. And now they're thinking, no, I'm afraid of you. He knelt down and pulled back the dog's upper lip to reveal the dog has no teeth. Seriously, there was not a tooth in that dog's mouth. The man said, even if this dog were ever to get loose and try to bite you, it wouldn't hurt. We all started to laugh. We were never afraid of that dog again. And when that man told us the truth, all of the fears and worries we had about that dog were instantly gone. I think that's how God wants us to deal with some of our anxieties and fears. Sometimes the goal of fear is the outcome is just be able to live close to uncertainty, be able to live close to the danger, be able to live close to the dog. And because God is camped around you, no, God's knocked all of its teeth out. It's not going to hurt you. It's going to be okay. God camps around your life. Life can't bite you the way it otherwise would because you know God. God, we thank you for your goodness to us. Thank you that you are a God who sees us in our fears and our anxieties and you've camped around us. You've camped around us. Nothing happens to us that you don't allow and you want to be a God who helps us walk through these difficulties, delivers us, rescues us. And I suspect every one of us here on this side of heaven, we've got some anxiety about something. And if we don't now, we will because we're all going to end up dying at some point. There's going to be some bad stuff happen to us in this life. There's plenty to worry about. But we have a God who camps around us. Help us to recognize that and to live our lives, even going through difficulties, as though you are present, because you are. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this sermon. We hope you found it connected you to the God of truth and love who we worship and serve at Bethany Chapel. If you have any questions or want to connect to any of our pastors, go online to bethanychapel.com and click Come. Thanks again, and God bless you.